Welcome back to The The Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we are incredibly excited to bring you our interview with Rodney Williams. Rodney is uh, an incredible guy that we recently got introduced to and we just had to have him on the show. Shout out to our producer, Jackie Kenoyer, for finding and getting Rodney on because I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. He is the founder of Listener, which is a technology company that he started in 2012 that basically uses ultrasonic technology to transfer data. And there's so many applications to it. We're going to get into all of that. It's an incredible piece of technology. But what's even more incredible is what he's been able to do with this business in a relatively short period of time. So Rodney started this company originally in Cincinnati and he built his team there. He raised funding there. He really leaned into that network that he built in that city. And now he's based in Oakland. And this episode is really about a couple of different things. One, it's about identifying markets that are ripe for disruption and figuring out how to conquer them one at a time. This episode is about how you adapt and you move from market to market and you figure out how to penetrate new areas, new verticals at a very rapid pace. It's about how you attract the right kind of team that can help you execute on a big audacious technology concept. A lot of people know examples like Facebook, who that wasn't the first social network, but ended up being the biggest one, or Uber, that wasn't the first ride-sharing concept, but ended up dominating the market. Some ideas come into the market so early that the markets aren't ready for them. And so in this case, actually, as you hear through the story, when Rodney Williams was trying to bring listener to the market, he had a big audacious goals of where the business could go how much impact his company could have. But he couldn't quite start by executing exactly on his vision right away. The first step was getting one part of the market, and as you'll hear, it was the music industry. And slowly but surely, over seven years, eventually the market became ready for him. And now, as you'll hear in part two of our interview with Rodney, the potential for his technology is incredible. And as you'll hear through the interview, Rodney is a really thoughtful and knowledgeable guy when it comes to brand building. I think there's a a real reason why he was successful with with this company. He has built up a strong foundation of knowledge, as you'll find out, um, that really enabled him to hit the ground running almost immediately with his business. But he also grew the business and started the business while still in a full-time job. And so he mitigated risk almost immediately. And we talk a lot in this show about how you should mitigate risk when you start something. So we're going to get into all of that and much more in the next uh, 25 minutes or so and the next week in part two of how he's taking this huge business and making it even bigger by disrupting the market in an even bigger way. We're going to find out exactly how he's doing that today. Please enjoy this episode with Rodney Williams of Listener. Rodney, um, you know, one thing that I'm wondering about, because there's a lot of articles there around what you're doing with Listener and podcasts, certainly that people can listen to, but Vadim and I always are curious about the origin of when somebody first realizes that they could be an entrepreneur or could be a leader. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you realized that about yourself? When did I realize that about myself? You know, I think probably uh, a couple, couple parts, one part. My mom used to have a beauty shop, and uh, I thought it was a good idea to uh, lease magazines that weren't necessarily there to her customers. Hmm. It actually worked out okay. 
And I, and I would tell you that the second part was probably uh, playing sports. I, I played, uh, played football mostly, and uh, I wasn't good. <laughs> uh, and I think when you're not good, you can you know, do a couple of things. I decided to be good at like the intangible stuff. Um, I worked out, I was real disciplined, and, and then people followed that type of behavior. So uh, I think those two things are, are really fundamental on how I figured, number one, obviously, you can see an opportunity like uh, selling magazines, but more importantly, being disciplined in your approach. People tend to follow people like that. Hmm. What is it about, let's say, even when your mom was running that beauty shop and you had that magazine idea, um, do you, can you point maybe to maybe how your mom raised you or your own personality that gave you this idea that, okay, I see this opportunity, I'm just going to try it. Basically gave you the ability to try something that doesn't quite exist and the confidence that maybe it'll work. Yeah. You know, my, my parents were entrepreneurs, uh, come from a, a Caribbean family. Um, so my mom, you know, had a the beauty shop in the basement. She was also a registered nurse. Uh, she probably also like sold cooked dinners on the weekend, so maybe she had a catering business. Um, that was the the extent. Dad had multiple jobs as well, so uh, I was used to that type of behavior. I think that um, the, one of the things that my parents did is that all the money I made, I kept, and and they wouldn't necessarily influence the decisions that I made with it. And so I, for me, it was also like a sense of ownership, a sense of autonomy. But definitely, I think those were things that were important. I, I just remember it. There was definitely a moment where I was like, oh, there's like small business entrepreneurs, and then there's like big business entrepreneurs. And I had clearly made an example of uh, I didn't want to be a small business entrepreneur. I didn't want to copy. And I'm not saying a restaurant is a copy, but fundamentally, the business model of a restaurant is fundamentally the same. Um, I wanted to do something completely unique. Uh, and, and that's also what catapulted me to technology. And we obviously will get to how the idea for a listener came about, given your background. But, you know, Sergey and I truly believe that uh, everyone's born an entrepreneur in that, you know, when we're young, we like to explore and play. And sometimes that's kind of beaten out of us through school or maybe conservative parents that uh, a little bit more risk averse, let's say. But it sounds like you were empowered to experiment, to try things for the small businesses that your parents were involved in uh, and also uh, encouraged by letting keep the money as well. But you ended up taking a pretty traditional route well, someone would probably think about it as traditional in that you obviously went to college. You ended up getting, I think, was it four degrees? Yes. Four degrees. You started working for Lockheed Martin and then eventually ended up at Procter & Gamble, which was a massive company. So you went kind of like the secure route in the very beginning. Why did you decide to do that? Why didn't you jump into entrepreneurship, into that big entrepreneurship thing that you wanted to do earlier on in college? So... I, I'm, I'm going to say what it, we, I always called it. I mean, we, I always had a side hustle. You know, I think I went from magazines to uh, penny candies in school. You can sell penny candy for five cents. <laughs> um, so good profit margin. Uh, I went to high school and I was throwing parties. I was making, t like my one friend, he could make these t-shirts. I was like, I think we can sell that. So I was always that type of person. And for me, I just didn't find my thing. My actual first thing, I, I had a friend who his dad owned a series of grocery stores, and I wrote up a proposal in high school that 
we should do, and at the time, you know, applications were limited, but I, I said, you know, home delivery of a restaurant can be extremely profitable. It can be a better business if we can figure it out. That was probably my first, like, attempt to do something super duper disruptive. I remember I, I wrote the same model for uh, cars. And then I was like, you know what? Obviously, this kid from Baltimore doesn't have the necessary means to get to the right folks. And for me, what school was about, and every school that I've ever been to, um, I, I created a network, and my network grew. So for me, I needed to go to a school somewhere different. I wanted a new network. I wanted to be around new people. And this is, these are the experiences that I'm going to do to learn to figure out what my thing is. Yeah. Gotcha. So essentially, you were trying to almost hedge against the risk of the next business failing by building your network and also getting the education to be better prepared for the next thing once you figured it out. Yeah. So, you know, one of my, my, my education isn't, wasn't to be a designer or an engineer. My, all my education was specifically designed to see an opportunity and have what it takes to build it and launch it. Everything about it. I was a uh, I was business undergrad, so I did one. I did a bachelor's in business administration and uh, finance. I did the my bachelor of arts in economics. Then I did an integrated marketing degree, uh, and then I did when I did my MBA, I did supply chain. Hmm. So people were like, "Oh, you want to do?" No, I don't want to work for a warehouse, dude. I, I wanted to understand supply. I obviously had marketing supply, and then I wanted to understand uh, finance. Um, and then from an from a economics of scale, I wanted to understand markets and, and being able to see those things. And my, my idea, um, and even when I went to work at Procter & Gamble, I pitched myself as that type of person, right? I'm much more of an athlete, right? Um, I have the ability to see things that other people see. I can have intelligent conversations about it. I can work cross-functionally. And then um, I'm, you know, I have enough, a higher enough risk profile to make a decision. And that combination is actually really, really, that's it is an entrepreneur. When you think about it, right? A really good entrepreneurs, I think, assess environments better than others. And I think they're, they have a, a good sense of risk. I think they understand the ability to build teams. Um, and then they I also understand when they have to be complete jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That is the hard part, but sometimes nobody else <laughs> wants to do that part of the job, so you have to. Exactly. So, so you branded yourself as this like forward, forward-thinking, cross-functional guy with a different expertise and and a technology expert. And at Procter and Gamble, I believe you spent five years, right? And um, you were working on basically distributing what they were doing through technology. You were filing patents. You worked in the Pampers brand, and it's actually pretty unique, I think, that you worked in a marketing function there, even though you didn't necessarily have that experience, but. How did you then, because you had so many potential opportunities you could have pursued during that time while you were absorbing and learning, how did you hone in on this particular opportunity to, as the one to go all in on? You know, I'm also, I got another rule. I, I tell people all my ideas. Uh, if it's good enough, people pay attention. They ask you questions about it. They continue to ask you questions. If it's not that good, then it's not that good. So... Um, I, me having ideas continued while I was at Procter & Gamble, and some of those ideas end up being ideas in the company that made the company a lot of money. Um, majority of the ideas did that, right? The company being Procter & Gamble, Procter and it Gamble. made them a lot of money. <laughs> um, then I started to think, and obviously, right, you write this patent, you do this good project, you grow the brand by 1% or 2%, everyone gets bonuses, it's great, but you get a little plaque, right? So, you know... <laughs> 
I was just like, uh, maybe I should uh, think about some other things. Um, and in that process, I had the idea of listener, and I started to um, bring it up in different conversations. And the feedback was incredible, was strong, you know. And you know, even my closest friend became my co-founder, who was an entrepreneur and the CEO of his company. It took him about two days, and then I remember, like in forty-eight hours, he was like, "Oh my God, I think this is could be big." So those are the type of things that I do in the beginning. Um, and you got to understand, when you do that, you're, you're actually brainstorming a little bit. Because they're going, wow, that's great. But you know what? That business model has some issues. Wow, that is awesome. But you're going to have to figure out how to uh, potentially launch that. Or, you know, that technology doesn't exist. You're going to have to figure out how to create that technology. So I started to get this feedback. And also, a lot of those people became my co-founders, Right. Uh, so that's what I did in the beginning, and that, that's how I was able to differentiate it. And I gave myself a milestone. I went on a startup competition called the Startup Bus. I did well. I came back. Some investors were interested. I gave myself three months. If I was could do X, Y, Z in three months, I was out. Hmm. And what was that X, Y, Z that you decided? Um, so one of the things I, I, I there's a theme here of me about there's a theme here in my life at least where I learn I ask questions I test and I try again um, in that process the first investors that I ever spoke to they gave me really strong feedback they said you know if I saw these things we would invest um, obviously this widespread technology is a little wide but it, you know focusing on maybe a music vertical um, to launch and if you get a music partnership. Um, we'll give you $50,000. And then he said, if you get another $50,000, we'll give you $150,000 more. Hmm. That's basically what happened. And um, and then they wanted us to patent it and things like that. So we went through that process, and then three months later, we showed up with the music partnership. We showed up with the uh, all of the IP, and we got $50,000. And then a week later, we got the other money. Hmm. So, um, you know, how did that all happen? There's a lot of things that happened in between that part. But again, I, instead of like, um, we didn't build anything, you know, we were in a startup competition. We didn't really have anything, but we met someone that gave really strong feedback on what he thought success would look like for a seed round, or at least to start raising it. And um, some people, you know, sometimes we, we have this idea and we go so deep in it. Like, you know, MVP, but we go so deep in the idea before ever talking to an investor. And uh, I, don't, I don't actually technically agree with that. Um, in the second venture that I've co-founded, I mean, we, we, we were talking to investors day one. Hmm. So that's just more my style. Interesting. So in those three months, it sounds like, given the feedback, the important aspect was securing a music partnership, and that's the vertical that you picked to focus on first. Did you have contacts at this point in that industry, or did you have to start from scratch, and what did you do to close that deal? So I didn't have any concrete contacts. I think what I what I had was um, I had a friend of mine who was trying to get into the music industry, and he was somewhat connected. Uh, and uh, I remember someone saying, you know, just get a meeting with him. Start off the week out in LA, get a meeting with him, and then or and then ask for him to make introductions to other people. Mm-hmm. So we took a little risk. We went there out there for I scheduled a trip to LA for about a week. I didn't necessarily have, I had one meeting scheduled with this person. Um, and at the end of the meeting, I showed him a demo of what we could do in music. And I said, is there anyone else you would like to speak to? That turned into, you know, us getting into Warner Brothers office and Atlantic's office. And then 
it was somehow we ended up at Adam Factory, and then we met Nas, and that became our first partner in music. Now, aside from the investor telling you that this would be an initial first application, what indication that did you have that it could be interesting? Because I'm still, I'm still trying to kind of frame in my head how you even thought of that technology and how you connected the dots of the two, two different applications. So just to level set for our listeners, the, the technology is basically a way to send data using sound. Right. So first of all, how did you even think of that? Because you're technical, but you're not an engineer. Mm-hmm. So how did that idea come about? And then how did you hone in on that application? Was it really just that investor telling you that that's a good idea? Yeah. You know, what, what happened is that there were early companies trying to do things with sound. One of them became a, a big company. One became, it was, called, it was a company called uh, Shopkick. And it was actually like a coupon-based platform. When you enter the store, you get pushed a coupon. The initial technology that was pushing the coupons was actually ultrasonic audio. For me, I was in retail. Of course, I know about Shopkick. So for me, it was top of mind. And the, the next level of exploration was what can this ultrasonic thing, what else can it do? So that was the question that went down a, a long, dark road of, wait a minute, the technology is in its infancy. I can, right now, it's just an ID. I can, there's some indication that this could be a protocol, but I could take some of these similar IDs, put it in music, and this can be like a multi-dimensional platform where we can track music based on ultrasonic tags. We can then trigger things based on ultrasonic tags. And technically, it was a more powerful solution in music than fingerprinting and watermarking like Shazam. And... You know, we we got to that determination by, you know, at the end of the day, like I think I thought it, we all thought it was much bigger than that. But you know, as investors said, is that you you got to figure out you got to figure out your focus and just deliver on that one thing and do that one thing well enough to get to the next place. And and that was our goal. Our goal was just, okay, let's just do one thing. We're going to build this mobile app uh, and this platform. And it's going to offer engagement and analytics to music companies. Hmm. There was not much information about send data versus ultrasonic. They would say, oh, wow, how are you doing that? Because I would go in there, play music, and then the phones would light up. (laughs) I said, well, we're using ultrasonic smart tones. It does all these things. And they would be like, wow, that's fantastic. That's new. That's good. Let's move forward. So that's that was the pathway. Um, but again, we didn't technically build anything at that point yet. We had a rough MVP by the time we made our LA trip, enough to demo it and get a, a partner. Hmm. I think that's important for our listeners to understand that every step of the way, you were able to secure fundraising, close these partnerships because you prove to them your ability to execute and you show to them that you could do these things. You buy the MVP that you created, even though maybe it wasn't a product yet, you impress them by sending the push notification or whatever it was um, to show what the technology could do by uh, showing your investors that you can build a relationship in the music industry or whatever industry you want to attack. Uh, Before I ask you the next question, I just wanna know that from what I read, you started the company while you were at Procter & Gamble? Yes, I was still there. And then did you quit your job when you made it into the bus? No, I, I quit the job when I got my term sheet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, no, so the, 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 the bus was around March, right around South by Southwest time period. And then we probably got our term sheet in the beginning of August. 
and I was able to leave the end of August. Now, it sounds like the way you won that first partnership is by building this exciting prototype that did something cool and people thought, hey, it's cool, it's forward thinking, it's new tech, let's do it. How did you know what to build first and then how did you get the team to actually build that first initial version that wowed your first partners, these music partners? You know, um, we, we, we learned a lot going on that startup competition. It was almost like startup boot camp, right? And so we learned some fundamental things and got some really strong feedback around the music and focusing in that particular area. If this was an engagement tool or this was an analytics tool. Um, you know, for us, you got to look at market dynamics. Um, uh, music industry at that time period was um, suffering a bit. Um, revenue was down because they were moving from single song sales to streaming products. And so discretionary budgets for marketing and fan engagement wasn't there. So the kicker was that we were going to we were going to go out and sell to brands and who else sells better to brands than a former brand manager right now how did it all make sense i looked at the market i see that they were exposed i looked at my skills and my network and see what was the best thing that i could sell at the time and at that time we we basically said that so way we when we launched we actually we actually had a lot of decent i mean decent amount of artists from labels would give us artists and give us content we would tag it, and then based on the engagement, we would sell brands the inventory, and it would it would and, and it was like a custom like custom campaign buys that were really really premium. It, it was able to give us a million dollars in revenue in a year. Hmm. So um, again, was the market opportunity in this thing huge? But for our investors, they were like, "Wow, okay, <laughs> they're executing, <laughs> they're executing," and in the back of my mind. Back up, actually, not the back of my mind, but we, we were really perfecting the tech, right? And just for people that are listening, inventory basically means audience and traffic. Where specifically, what was the source of that traffic? Where was it coming from? So, we, so the, it was a mobile application. So mm-hmm. we sourced the traffic or we promote the traffic. It was easy, right? We had content that no one else had, and you had to listen to music and, or, or put your phone near things with sound to unlock it. Everything you put near it that had our tag allowed you to unlock it. When you unlocked it, it was brought to you by a brand. But more specifically, how did you actually source that content? Through the relationships with labels and the record companies. Got it. Makes so, sense. So, you know, I mean, Nas was one of the first, right? It went, from, it went from Nas to Rock Nation. It went to then Warner and then to Atlantic. So we did things with Jason Derulo to Meek Mill to um, J. Cole, uh, Shakira. Uh, and like you know, who paid for Shakira was T-Mobile. Um, who, I remember Budweiser did a bunch of things for people. So um, these were the examples of how we how we were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, at that time, I also knew that you know brands weren't digitally savvy as they needed to be. So they were, it was a, it was a lot of money being thrown at digital campaigns that provided a more intimate experience. Mm-hmm. That's true. I also spent some time in the advertising industry, and it's still (laughs) kind of a mess. Um, Even with ad tech, the industry has consolidated in some ways just because there's so much fraud going on in there. But I I know that around 2013, you ended up raising close to a million bucks, right? 850,000, something like that. Yeah, the full C round became just just 850,000. $850,000. And things were going pretty well. You identified a niche that worked. Uh, You were generating revenue. But there's another part of the story where at some point there was kind of a gap 
in terms of you didn't have as much cash flow or funding and you actually had to start paying the bills and making payroll out of pocket. What happened there and what gave you the confidence to do that? I mean, I you know, I read that you you just had the vision that things were going to work out and it was a timing thing, but still that's that's a pretty big risk to take. Yeah, I mean, it, that's probably the simple answer. Um, for some reason, I have a lot more clarity today, so I can I can speak to a, a little bit more clarity. I think even though we were having success in music, I didn't believe in music or this model for music. Why not? I, I, I couldn't predict when the budgets were going to get fatter, right? Um, it was very seasonal, very campaign-driven, and talent is very, like, you know, you could have an artist in the platform that wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. Then it would necessarily... It would, you know, fundamentally perform low. It was just too many intangibles. But more importantly, it's not what I ultimately wanted it to do anyway. So for me, it was about you know executing on the plan, and the plan was the ultrasonic tech needed to get better because it needed to stand on its own. That's it for part one of our interview with Rodney Williams. As you could tell from this interview so far, there's a lot you can do as long as you're resourceful, uh, before quitting your full-time job or before raising millions of dollars to validate your idea, to get customers, to start figuring out how you're going to tackle the market. And once you do get that traction, things start kind of coming together. Part two of our interview, he'll dive deeper into how they pivoted into different markets, continue to grow and generate millions and millions of dollars of revenue, and how now they're disrupting the payments industry with some massive partnerships that they've closed in the past year. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next Monday.